I invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 119. And we start this morning a series on the Psalms. Uh, we'll be looking not at every verse in Psalm 119. As you'll notice, there's 176 of them, but we'll be looking at going through that and then a few other Psalms before we return uh, to a New Testament book. This morning, we'll look at verses 1 to 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Father, we pray now as we consider this psalm and your word that your spirit would enlighten our hearts and minds that we may receive these truths. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this morning, as I mentioned, we'll start our series in the Psalms, and particularly Psalm 119, and as the title suggests here, this is an introduction to Psalm 119, and so it's going to be a Bible study that by the end will lead into a sermon, but it's going to be a Bible study, so I hope you have your Bibles there. There's Bibles in the pews. You can open up to Psalm 119 because we'll be taking a look, uh, walking through it generally, looking at particular verses um, verses 1 to 8, but also considering other scriptures as well. As I was studying for the psalm, at the time I, I studied in particular for this psalm, I, one of the commentators that if you read a commentary during your series, like if I preach on through the psalms, you want a psalms commentary, I recommend Derek Kidner. Um, he's one of the great commentators on the Psalms. And he writes this about this Psalm. He says, This giant among the Psalms shows the full flowering of that delight in the law of the Lord, which is described for us in Psalm 1, and gives its personal witness to the many sided qualities of Scripture praised in Psalm 19. And so basically what Kidner's saying is that Psalm 119 is an expanded treatment of Psalm 1 and Psalm 19. Now, you know, you put 1 and 19 together, you get 119. It has nothing to do with that. Um, But it, it, it does fit. In Psalm 1 we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. And so that's Psalm 19. 
And so these two Psalms, one, Psalm 1 and Psalm 19, they, they teach us that the Bible, the Word of God, the Scripture, the Bible is the divinely inspired, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, clear, sufficient Word of God. When the, when the Word of God speaks, God is speaking. When the Word of God makes a promise to you, God is making a promise to you. When it makes a threat, God is threatening. When the Scripture is read and preached, it's as if Christ Himself was standing here before you proclaiming the Word of God. It is God's Word. And so it's a word that we must know. We need to understand it if we're going to have confidence in this sinful world, if we're we're going to know God personally, if we're going to keep from drowning in our guilt, drowning in our sin, if we're going to be able to stand against the world, the flesh, and the devil who, who seeks to knock us down. There's nowhere else we can go. There's nowhere else for us to turn to find true comfort, to find strength than to Christ found in the Scriptures. And and so we must turn to the Bible for our aid, for our help. The Scriptures teach in His Word we must hope. And see, that high view of Scripture, as I just read from Psalm 1 and Psalm 19, is what we find here as well in Psalm 119, and, and it's expounded upon. This is one of the best places in Scripture to begin to understand the true nature of God's Word and and its practical application to our life. In Psalm 119, we have the longest of the Psalms. Um, It's the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Uh, Just two Psalms before this, in Psalm 117, we have the shortest of the Psalms. And Psalm 117 has two verses and five lines. And Psalm 119 has 176 verses and 315 lines. Psalm 117 tells us to praise God. Psalm 119 says praise God for His Word, the Bible. And why would that be? Because the only way to know God and to praise Him correctly is found in the Scriptures. That's how we come to know Him. And so if we're to obey Psalm 117 to praise God, praise the Lord all nations, extol Him all peoples, praise the Lord, if we're going to obey that command, we need to appreciate and we need to understand the, the content of Psalm 119 about the Word. Now, given the importance of this psalm and uh, the, the magnitude of it, uh, there's been a lot written on it. As I found out and I studied, Dr. Boyce preached 14 sermons on this psalm, uh, and it became a book, another book that may be worth reading, Living by the Book. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his commentary on the psalms, he, the treasurer David, he devotes 349 pages to it. Charles Bridges wrote 481 pages about it, but that's nothing. Thomas Manton wrote a three-volume work on Psalm 119. Each volume is 500 to 600 pages in length. It's a total of 1,677 pages. It has 190 chapters, more than the number of verses in Psalm 119. And so that's what I'm going to (laughs) follow. We're going to take our time, and we'll be finished this in 15 years. 
But it just goes to show you how beautiful this psalm is and how wonderful it is that they would write so much. And so, it's known as, as you study those works, not particularly Manton, but Boyce and the other commentators, Kidner, you find out very quickly this is what's called an acrostic psalm. What do I mean? And it's the most elaborate acrostic psalm, too. It's divided into 22 stanzas, one for each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. If you look in your pew Bibles, you'll see that sections are titled by the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each stanza has eight verses in it. And each of the eight verses begins with the corresponding Hebrew letter. And so the first eight verses begins with the letter in Hebrew, Aleph, and then Bet, and then Gimel, and it works its way through. And so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and so on and so forth. And, and so it's a poetic psalm. It's a poetic device. Um, this is why, though, some have called this psalm the ABC of the Word of God. And the reason is because the most striking feature of this psalm, the most important feature of the psalm, that this poetic device of doing an acrostic points out, is that each verse, with only maybe a couple exceptions, each verse refers to the Word of God. It's definitely about 171 verses, and some would argue maybe up to 175 of the 176 verses refers to the Bible. Uh, the psalmist is celebrating, one writer said, the fundamental reality that however it came to be and whatever form it existed, the Word of God, the Word of God is central to the life of the people of God. Our God is a God who speaks. And, and, and we shouldn't take that for granted. He speaks to us through His Word. Now, the, the psalm's main theme it pertains to the Scripture. It, it's not that it's talk about its inerrancy, if you know what that means, that, that it's, it's true. Um, that is true of the Word. Um, it's not its inspiration, that God breathed it out. That is true. That, that's true about the Word, too. And it's infallible. It's without error. That's true. The main theme of this psalm is the dynamic supernatural power of God's Word. The main theme is the sufficiency of Scripture or the sufficiency of Scripture in the, in the midst of life's joys and trials. That's the main theme. If you go back to Psalm 19 and verse 7 of that psalm, we read this. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That word perfect does not refer to purity of Scripture, but to its sufficiency. The word uh, means whole, complete, lacking nothing, comprehensive, sufficient. And see, the 176 verses of Psalm 119 bear testimony to the truth that we just read in Psalm 19, verse 7, that the word of God is sufficient. Now, what do we mean by the Word of God being sufficient? Now, this is, like I said, a Bible study, so this is going to, uh, I'll walk through this. It, it, this comes from the Westminster Confession. This is our confession 
of faith. These is the, the truths that we hold to, adhere to. And it begins the confession this way. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God to such an extent that men are without excuse, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary for salvation. What's he saying? He's saying this. When you look out at the, at the, at the universe, when you see the creation, your response should be, there is a God and he is a creative God, and he's a beautiful God, and he's an awesome God, and he must be an infinite God, an all-powerful God. You can learn those things. I mean, we suppress those truths in our sinfulness, but those things you can learn. And, 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 and our confession's acknowledging that. It's saying you can know those things. And, and, and all it does, though, is leave people without excuse. See, everybody, no, no, let me put it this way. No one's going to stand before God on Judgment Day and say, as most people say, they say, well, why didn't you reveal yourself to me? Why didn't you tell me you existed? You know, I, 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 I made an ultimatum to you. I said, if, if you're real, make the lightning strike here on the ground, and you didn't do it, so I don't have to believe. He's going to say, no, all of nature declares my glory. And you're without excuse. But see, here's the deal. Nature can't save you. It doesn't do enough to reveal the reality of our salvation. And so we need something else more than general revelation. We need a a special revelation that reveals the knowledge of God when it comes to who he is and his will for us and salvation. And therefore, our confession goes on to say, it pleased the Lord in various times and different ways to reveal himself. Our God speaks to declare his will to the church and then to preserve it. Remember, he spoke through dreams. He spoke directly. He, he did visions, all these things. But then they preserve that teaching written form where we get the Bible. And it was committed, we're told, by our confession because we are sinners and did you ever play the game where you know, pass the information? I, I whisper down um, to Gary here, and then he passes it on to Dana. And by the time it gets to the back row there with Jim, he, he's saying something completely different, right? We mess it up because our, our, our mind. Well, with Satan, the world, the flesh, and the devil, if all we had was the oral, even though in the Hebrew times they memorized everything, they wrote it down so that there, we'd be without excuse there in that sense. That, that we couldn't say, well, I thought they said, it is written for us. And it became necessary if we were going to be saved. And God did that work. And then our confession goes on to say, well, then there's 66 books. And it names them. And then it says, those are the Word of God and not the other books. And it explains why the apocryphal books are not the Word of God. Section 4 or 5 explains how we know with assurance that these books are the Word of God and they're authoritative. And, 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 and it also talks about them being self-authenticating. I mean, they're the Word of God. They proclaim the Word of God and they prove themselves to be the Word of God. And then we read the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory and man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly stated in Scripture or by good and necessary inference may be deduced from Scripture. What does it mean? Everything you need to know to be saved, everything you need to know to live a godly life is either plainly stated 
or, or, or by good and necessary consequence, you know it's true from the Scripture. Everything you need to know. It doesn't mean the Bible includes everything that Jesus or the apostles taught. John tells us that the books couldn't even contain the many wonders that Jesus did. Um, and it doesn't teach us everything we need to know. You know, when I decided to try to lose weight, I didn't say, well, I'm going to read Romans because the Bible's sufficient. You know, and um, despite those, the Bible diet books, don't buy them. Um, I, 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 they may be good. I haven't read them. But you get the point. The, the Bible's not a nutrition book. I didn't go, I, you don't go to the Bible. I want to be a mechanic. I better memorize the Scripture. You ought to memorize the Scripture if you want to be a godly mechanic, but that's not where you learn how to be a mechanic. It's not teaching us. It's not sufficient for all those things. That should be obvious. It, it teaches that when we're facing an issue, and, and how am I supposed to live out the Christian life in this situation, the Word of God gives me instruction. Everything I need to know is there. You want to see people come to faith in Christ. You're a believer. You want to see that. Well, Paul tells us faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? By the Word of God, Romans 10. Maybe you want to grow in, in your sanctification, your spiritual life. Well, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Thy Word is truth. You see, the Bible is sufficient for equipping you to faithfully live out your faith. That's what it's uh, sufficient for. One writer said, we now see the intended purpose of the Word of God for the man of God. It's to fully equip him for his tour of duty as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And see, this has many practical applications. It reminds us that nothing should be added to Scripture or is of equal value. This is where the church of Rome went wrong. Among other things, they, they elevated a man at the level of Scripture with authority. And whenever we do that, in any way we do that, eventually Scripture takes second place. And, 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 and man in his thinking comes first. And so we have doctrines that, that come out of Rome uh, that teach that Mary is the co-redeemer with Christ. No one argues, well, that's found in the Bible, but, but, but the magisterium and the Pope said it, so it's of equal value. And, and, and so if Scripture is sufficient, nothing should be of equal value with the Scripture. Um, it teaches us that we're not required to believe anything about God or Jesus or His will for our life that's not found in the Scripture. Again, we don't need the Pope or some self-proclaimed prophet to give us some special word of knowledge beyond the Word of God to know how to truly live for God. That's not how it works. God's will is found for us in Scripture. And you say, well, wait a minute, what, what about his secret will for my life? You know, I need to know uh, who I'm going to marry. We're having this wedding here, and how, how do they know? Is it God's Will. I've, this comes up all the time when um, I would be with college students. So I, I, you know, how do I know what God, who God wants me to marry? I said, well, the Scripture is clear. Marry a believer. You know, they, they, they definitely, despite 2023, they should be of the opposite sex. And that's about as far as it goes, the Scripture. Other than that, flip a coin. They need to be godly. 
The scripture doesn't tell you. Now, I'm not telling somebody to flip a coin. You need to use wisdom. God doesn't reveal to you out of, I, I remember a story of somebody saying, God told me I should, I, I am to marry, and it was, a, it was an assistant pastor, and, and God wants me to marry this individual. And, and I remember the head pastor saying, well, all right, I'll say something, but I'm going to have to ask his wife first. <laughs> What's the point? She thought God was speaking to her. No, the Word of God is as far as we need to go. You, how to live godly in a marriage, how to live godly as that mechanic, how to live godly in your nutrition, all those things are taught in the Word, but not, not those individual secret things. The secret things belong to the Lord thy God, says Deuteronomy 29, 29. And so we're not to believe or know any, we don't need to know anything about God or his redemptive work or his will for our life that is not found in Scripture. I, I have no right to impose on you teachings that are not found in Scripture. Your job is to hear me preach as if Christ himself were teaching you the word. Not that I'm Christ, but I'm preaching his word and, and I'm proclaiming it to you. Your job as a good Berean is to say, is this what the scripture teaches? And if it does, I must submit to it. Not me, the word. The word has the authority, I do not. And, and, and so I can't teach things. I can't tell you, for example, that something is sinful because I don't like it if the Scripture doesn't command it. You know, what's the biggest debated thing? Obviously, alcohol. Can I have wine? Can I drink a glass of wine? And, and I, 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 can, I have to say this as a pastor. The Bible condemns drunkenness. Clear. It gives a lot of uses for alcohol. One of them is to cheer the heart. And, 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 uh, and, and one is medicinal, one of them is sacramental, we do it, we, so on and so forth. I can't go beyond that. Is it wise that you drink? may not be. But I have no right to tell you you're sinning if you do. And any pastor that does is going beyond Scripture because it's clear that the Scripture doesn't say it. It may be wise. They may be telling you to do the wise thing and you might follow them, but understand there's a difference between that and having the authority of thus saith the Lord. And so I can't go beyond the Scripture with sin. There's no need to go beyond the law. That's where the Pharisees went wrong. They wanted to keep the law. They meant well. They put a, an oral law around it, a barrier, as it were, you know, so that they don't break it. And then those rules started becoming what they judged people's spirituality on. And so, we can't go beyond the Scripture with its teachings. We can't go beyond it announcing what is sinful uh, it, it, because the Bible's sufficient. And so, finally, let me just say this about this. Because the Bible is sufficient, what it emphasizes, we should emphasize. And so, let me give you an example. We just did a conference on end times. We shared our position on the end times. What we believe is the closest biblically. What the Bible is clear on and what the Bible emphasizes when it comes to the end times is that Christ will return. It doesn't emphasize if it's pre, post, mid, if it's after the millennium, if there's no millennium. It doesn't emphasize that. I have an opinion on that. It's important to study and think about and wrestle with, but I can't get up here every week and say, right, now another reason why you have to believe my position on the end times, because it's not what the Bible emphasizes. 
That's why it's important that we go through books of the Bible. It keeps me from preaching on those things I want you to hear rather than what God may want you to hear. So we need to emphasize what Scripture emphasizes. And so if you understand the sufficiency of Scripture, you understand that in our day and age, this is the most undermining teaching that the Bible has because people just don't believe it. Even Bible-believing churches don't believe this. They, they say they do. Oh, the Bible's inspired. It's authoritative. Um, it's without error. Um, uh, 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 but in practice, eh, just look at some churches. And I'm not here to mock other churches. But I, I have to say there are churches where you couldn't distinguish them from a nightclub in Miami. And it's not because their music doesn't have an organ. I'm not even saying that. But it, it's, it's unbiblical. Why do they do it? Because they're evil. No, because they want to they reach people, they say. And so we, we do these things so that we can get people to come. Oh, so the Bible isn't sufficient for that. That's what I mean by them denying the sufficiency of Scripture. I'm not saying you can't entertain, and, and I'm talking about church worship, corporate worship. I'm not talking about generally Christianity. I, these, the, I, I know churches that have resorted to singing secular music throughout their whole service. One church, I, I brought it up in the first service, you know, they, they, they literally sung Britney Spears, and I realized probably nobody even knows who she is. <laughs> but can, to think of any contemporary uh, musician today. Go home and enjoy that music if you want to, assuming it's not completely ungodly and vulgar. But to bring it into the church, and they're doing it because they're saying, you know, they wouldn't tell you this, but what they're saying is, I, what do you want me to just preach? And you say, well, maybe it's working. Their churches are bigger. Or they're just making it safer for someone to go to hell in because they don't feel convicted by God as they went to hear the concert. And so we don't need a gimmick. I don't need anything else. I don't need to draw them with a bait and switch. I don't need to lie. And then, why? Because the Scripture is sufficient. This has nothing to do with my ability to preach. There may be a better preacher, and you like him better. That has nothing to do with it. It's saying that Scripture tells me how I am to conduct myself, how I am to worship, how I am to preach, what am I supposed to focus on, the Word of God, proclaiming the Word, not doing dance numbers during the worship service, because I think it'll get people in. They are denying the sufficiency of Scripture. We must always acknowledge in principle and in practice that every truth necessary pertaining to our faith, pertaining to our worship, pertaining to salvation, pertaining to living godly is found in God's Word. And in either case, that's what the psalm is all about. And to present that theme of the supernatural sufficient power of God's Word, um, it uses several words. I'm going to walk through these quickly, um, given our time. First is the word law. If you look in verse 1, blessed are those whose ways is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Um, Psalm 1, Psalm 1 even t- says this, blessed is the man who walks and not in the counsel of the wicked, but in the, delights himself in the law of the Lord. The word law in verse 1 is the word Torah. It means more than just laws. The laws were part of the Torah. Torah means teachings. It has to do with the written revelation. 
It includes narrative, history, poetry, and prophecy. These stories, poems, and sermons are part of the Word of God. And blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, who walk in the teachings, who walk in the Scripture. That's the first word, testimonies. Blessed are those, verse 2, who keep His testimonies. It means to bear witness. These are practical principles governing behavior. God's Word testifies to His righteousness. God's Word testifies against our sinfulness. It bears witness of who God is, His nature, His truth. That's another word, testimonies. Precepts. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. This is kind of the, the, the fine print of Scripture, you know, the, the minutiae, as you were, uh, of life. Every detail of life is dealt with. It doesn't mean you focus on all the. This is why I believe the Pharisees had the right idea. They wanted to do the right thing because they were recognizing every area of life matters. Have you ever heard a Christian say, you know, there's just bigger things? We could do that with our sin. It's just such a small sin. But see, Scripture addresses it all. The Pharisees got carried away. Uh, and so they ended up majoring on the minors. But in either case, the Scriptures deal with even the small details of our conduct. Fourth, it's statutes. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. That could be translated decrees. The word means engraved. It shows the binding force and permanence of God's word. It's the enduring significance of his word. Fifth is commands. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commands. That's verse 6. This draws attention to the authority for which the law has. God's right to determine the basis of our relationship. They're His commands. Uh, and, And it also shows the practicality of it. He's saying, look, live this way. And so it's practical if you want to live godly. This is how you do it. There are commands, righteous rules. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Verse 7. Uh, these are the rules that, re- that regard our, I mean, regulate our relationship with one another, how, how we're to live in relationship. And, that, and those, those rules are found in, in stories and in, in, in the Bible, for example. Uh, they guided the judges. In deciding guilt in cases, you, you see that played out in the Scripture. And so, seventh is word. How can a young man keep his way pure? Verse 9, by guarding it according to your word. That's the most general term. It has, the, it has to do with speaking. And God's word is what he has spoken is the idea. Now, the eighth word is also translated word. But it's a different Hebrew word. It means promises. I have stored up your word. I have stored up your promises, verse 11, in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so those are eight words describing the Scripture. I, 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 let, me, let me repeat them because I doubt if you followed that. Torah, testimonies, precepts, statutes, commands, righteous rules, word, and promises. And, and see, all those different terms bring out the richness of the whole of Scripture, This is why the psalmist was able to expand this one theme into 22 eight-line poems. It's why Thomas Mann was able to preach that many sermons on this text. It it, it just shows how the depth of the Word of God, and it challenges us to to value the, the revealed Word of God more. 
One writer said, look, you can never think or say too much about the Word of God. And so the psalmist doesn't just tell us about the Word of God. He also tells us all the wonderful things it accomplishes in our life. Again, this is an introduction, so let me quickly. It it keeps us clean, we're told in verse 9. It gives us joy, verse 14, as an example. It guides us, verse 24 and 35 and 35. It establishes our values, Uh, uh, verse 11, the word helps us to pray effectively, verse 58, gives us hope, verse 49, peace, verse 165, and freedom, verse 133. Just uh, quickly again, I'm walking through this. Loving the word will help us find and fulfill God's purpose, we're told, and strengthen us and witness. When we think we're down and out, the word will revive us and give us back to our feet, says verse 25, 37, 40, 88, 107. This is what the Word of God does in our lives. If, if, if we delight in His Word, if we study His Word, if we learn His Word, if we treasure His Word, if we obey His Word, the Lord will work in us and through us to accomplish great things for His glory. See, as you read and as you study Psalm 119, it, you, 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 what's going to happen is you're going to see the psalmist in a variety of situations. And a variety of experiences. All those different things, but the word never changes. His devotion to God and his word never changes. Circumstances change, but God and his word remain the same. Well, as I was studying for the sermon, I came across several ways as believers we can apply Psalm 119 to our lives generally, the value of the word. I just mentioned it. If we value it, we'll study it, obey it, delight in it, learn from it, live it out. There are several more. Again, not going to go into detail. One is this. Memorize the Word. Meditate upon it. Verse 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart, your promise or your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Store up there has to do with meditating upon This is why, by the way, when you're studying the Bible, yes, you should read it all the way through. I say I should do it. I I, I don't always succeed. But one way John MacArthur suggests, and I I think it's a helpful way of studying the Word, he says, pick one book, say you pick Philippians, and just keep reading it every day for 30 days, every day, reading it straight through. You'll learn a lot. That's meditating on it. That's thinking through it. And then maybe reflecting upon it more and then memorizing it or absorbing it. That's a great application. Why? Because Scripture should control your your head. It It should control the way you think. It should control your heart, your desires, and your emotions. And it controls your hands, what you are to do. And so it shapes your whole person. And that's what it's meant to do. And so memorize it. Another application is declare it. Declare it. Look at verse 13. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. We don't just keep it to ourselves. We, we, we proclaim it. I, I shared in the first service, when I first got saved, I have to be honest and say I probably, I, I may have had more zeal to do this than I do now. And I love preaching the word. Uh, but I, I remember after getting saved, being so excited, I stood up in an ice cream parlor and said, can I get your attention? Started preaching. Nobody listened. I thought I was crazy. Yeah, I was, a little. 
but I, I, but I did it. What, what's the point? I, I had learned something in Scripture that I didn't know before. I learned about salvation. I learned about God. And, and what does it do? I want to declare His Word to others now. I want to share that message. And not just particular parts, the whole counsel of God. Again, why we go through books. We share it all because it's all God's Word. It should so burn in our hearts that we have to proclaim it. And when I listen to uh, good preachers, I'm not necessarily making a contrast, but when I, when I like Sinclair Ferguson, somebody, I hear that, I, I have to tell people about it. Why? Well, he brings out the word of God. And, and, and so, when I hear the word, if I value it, I want to declare it. Let me just, now let me close. If you value the word of God as Psalm 119 expects of a believer, you will recognize your need for Christ. Let me explain. When you read these first eight verses, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You can get the impression that what the psalmist is saying is you want to please God or you want to have a right relation with God, you need to keep the law. And that's how, that's how I, I, I am made right with God. And because I do these things, I'm blessed. Now, there's nothing wrong with keeping the law as a believer. But the more you study this, the more you realize that blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. I mean, of all the things I just shared that we should be doing because of this, how often do you do them? We, We just don't. We love the, nobody here is probably saying, I hate the word of God. We love the Word of God, but do we have that passion that, that the psalmist wants us to have? And the answer is no, and, and, and neither did the psalmist, because if you go to the end of the psalm, verse 176, he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And then he lifts up this prayer, seek your servant. Not, I'll seek you and, and I'll get better. I'll keep trying so that I'll be made right with you. No, no, no. You need to seek me, Lord. And, and why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, once God has sought us, not, not we climb up to him, but he came down to us and said, once he has saved us, we are now free from the penalty of the law. And by the power of the Spirit, we're able to practice the law and, and delight in it. However, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have yet to come to Him for your salvation, the law is not something you're delighting in. The law is your condemnation. It condemns you because it stands before you and said, did you keep this perfectly? And you have to answer, no, I have not. And so the law is your enemy because it announces your judgment, and at the same time, it cannot save you. It can only tell you that you have fallen short. See, keeping the law, following the Torah, memorizing these precepts, all of us as believers should do it. I don't have a problem if an unbeliever memorizes Scripture and statutes and commands and words and promises, but they cannot wash away your sin. 
Christ alone does that. And so if you're still separated from Christ, then you're still under his judgment. And if you're still trying to earn his salvation through law keeping, you will fall short. And so what do you need to do? You need to turn to the word of God who became flesh to take away your sin. See, the psalmist spells out everything we're to do. Christ kept it perfectly. From his heart and his head and his hands, he kept the law perfectly, and he did it on behalf of those who believe in him. And not only that, the judgment we deserve fell upon Christ, and he died for our sins. He kept the law for his lost sheep. He paid the penalty for breaking the law for his lost sheep. He lived and died and rose again for his lost sheep. And so you, as you read the word, you say, I cannot do this. And the answer is you are right. That's part of the purpose of the law. It's to drive you outside of yourself so that you turn to Jesus Christ and him alone and find your salvation. But once you do that, you can begin You can begin by the grace of God and the power of his spirit. You may not stand up at a friendly's ice cream parlor and start preaching it, but you'll delight in it. You'll be blessed by reading it. You'll come to know it. You'll meditate upon it, memorize it, and then you'll start seeing that it is the all-sufficient, Christ-exalting, Christ-focused, glorious word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you do seek us and you fill us with your spirit that we would love your word as it reveals to us our Savior, as it reveals to us your will for us, as it reveals for us your character, that we take great delight in it. In Christ's name, amen.